you have a Bible with you, open up to the book of Acts. We've been working verse by verse through this incredible uh, narrative of the early church, the book of Acts. And in fact, that's the title of our sermon today, The Early Church. And we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, as we read and continue to follow up on what's happening here. As Peter and John were able to be used by God to heal a lame man by the beautiful gate, they were arrested and challenged not to speak in the name of Christ. They said, we can't help but to speak what we've seen and what we've heard. They were released And then they return to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we're finishing up chapter 4, where the title of my Bible says they had everything in common. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through the end of the chapter. Luke writes this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that he had everything in common. And with great power... The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Father, we're grateful this morning to come together to sing wonderful songs about your sovereignty, about your love for us, about how you are with us in the fire. We're grateful today to read about this account of the early church of Acts, to be encouraged and to be challenged that we could have and hold everything that we share in common, first you and the faith that you give us in Christ, and then our possessions and even our own bodies as the body of Christ. We want to learn from this passage what you want us to learn so that we can live it out with more zeal and with more joy and with more dedication, all because of our gratitude for the Lord Jesus Christ who's changed us forever. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, have you ever heard someone say, we've got to get back to the early church? Have you ever heard someone say something like, our church should function just like the church of Acts? I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say that, but I've certainly said that. I've certainly thought that at times in my life. And that sentiment seems to be common among many evangelicals in our culture. Millennials, in particular, uh, seem to be very interested in getting back to simpler and more sincere model of church. Uh, Words like community and authenticity seem to be common in these conversations. And with some, it is a desire to critique the modern church and to elevate the early church. The modern church has become too materialistic, too program-driven, and too watered down, they would say. Let's return to the purity and the genuineness and the radical nature of the early church where it was all about Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit and living out your faith with a solidarity that could not be shaken. There seems to be a widespread desire for a return to what we read about here in the early chapters of Acts. For instance, it is more common nowadays to hear about churches meeting in houses rather than in large auditoriums or a traditional church building. Perhaps it is a desire to recapture the intimacy that seems to be present on the pages of the New Testament. Likewise, 
Many believers seem to be longing for a community in which they can share their lives and resources with one another instead of merely participating in the same old church programs. And when you put it that way, who doesn't want to return to the earlier model? Part of me is drawn to this desire to return to the early church. There is no doubt that there are many beautiful and praiseworthy practices of the early church. But have you ever stopped and asked yourself, is that really what we are supposed to do? Has God really called us to function exactly like the early church? Is that even possible? Well, first, let me just say that without a doubt, we should emphasize many of the same things that we read among the early believers, like what is found in our passage this morning and what we looked at a few months ago in Acts 2.42, where it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Devotion to the teaching of Scripture, along with fellowship and prayer, are essential to any local church. And we also read in Acts 2, 44 through 45, and all who believed uh, were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I also believe that a commitment to meeting the spiritual and physical needs of the church's members are priorities that every local church should strive for. Like the earliest Christians, our fellowship should include the regular breaking of bread, which is likely a reference to communion, and to baptism, and to the teaching of the Word of God, and to prayer. All of these priorities are worth putting under the core values tab of every church's website. So how could there be a problem with wanting to return to the early church, you may ask? Well, despite the fact that the early church gives us some patterns and practices to imitate, there are some ways to pursue the early church's example that may go beyond what is possible or what is prescribed. You can want to get back to the early church, but is that really what is intended for the church today? Let let me give you four potential pitfalls, and it's there in your notes, there in the introduction section, four potential pitfalls and misunderstandings which I've adopted from David Burnett in his article entitled, Should We Imitate the Early Church? Here's just a couple of cautions as we think about this. Number one, you cannot expect to have the same experiences. It's not a bad thing to want to see the Spirit of God move mightily in and through our church for the glory of God and for the spread of the gospel. The church was growing like wildfire in its early days with a distinct witness rightly caused the unbelievers to stand in awe. However, not everything that happened to or through the early church was intended to be the norm. Consider a couple of examples of the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2, this, this was a spectacular, one-time, epic-making event that fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy of Joel 2. We should not expect to hear a mighty rushing wind from heaven, nor should we expect to see divided tongues of fire as resting on the heads of the people in the church today. This was not a pattern to be followed, but rather an inauguration of Christ's church under the new covenant. Or consider the healing that we see in Acts. People were putting the sick into the streets in Acts 5.15 in hopes that Peter's shadow might pass over them and make them well. Paul raised up a young man who had fallen from a three-story building and died in Acts 20. 
And there is no doubt that there was a unique aspect to the miraculous wonders done by the apostles in the power of the Spirit in the early days of the church. And Acts is not giving us an exact blueprint for what the church should expect in all ages. God was doing a new work in light of Christ's perfect life and his death and his resurrection. It was a special time in church history where lives were being transformed and miracles were happening fairly regularly. And I'm just simply saying to you as your pastor, I don't think that the Bible intends for the exact same works to happen in the exact same way today. That doesn't mean God's lost his power. That doesn't mean that God can't do miracles. I'm just saying that that was a special kickstart to the new covenant and to the new church that we can appreciate and learn from, but we shouldn't necessarily feel guilty that somehow that's not happening in our church today. Number two, you cannot fixate on size and location. We can also get off track trying to imitate the size and location of the early church's gatherings. Yes, the early church often met in homes, but that didn't automatically make their gatherings more authentic, nor did it propel those early Christians into a new level of spiritual maturity. We may have our preferences or even our principled convictions on how large or small churches should be, but the size and the location of the early church's gatherings was never the point. Both small and large congregations can be spiritually healthy or unhealthy. Early Christians met where they could, just as Christians around the world do today. It's often a a, a matter of necessity. Who's to say that some of these early churches wouldn't have used a building if they had access to one? The point is that God's work in and through his people, big or small, known or unknown, at church or at home, is for the spread of his glory among the nations. Number three, you must be careful of only looking at a snapshot. We sometimes imagine the first century as the church's golden age with no drama or no division. There are certainly some high points. However, we need to be aware of putting the early church on a pedestal. These early Christians were far from perfect. And yes, the Lord used them in mighty ways, but we need to be careful about striving for something based on only a partial portrait. Let me give you a couple of examples. In our passage this morning, we read about how the believers were giving sacrificially of their own resources in order to meet the needs of fellow believers. But in the very next chapter, Acts chapter 5, God strikes two church members dead for lying about what they had given. Then, not too long after that, there was a division between the believers who spoke Greek and those who spoke Aramaic and Hebrew. This happened in Acts chapter 6, that the Greek-speaking believers were upset about how their widows were being treated as in comparison with the, with the Hebrew widows, and so this kind of had a, a stress on the mercy ministry of the church. In fact, the disagreement was so serious uh, that the apostles needed to appoint seven men to oversee the situation for the spread of the gospel so that it wouldn't be hindered. And we tend to gloss over these other uh, unpleasant scenes that were happening in the early church. We, we would be mistaken if we failed to note that the problems of the early congregations were real as well. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul confronted the church in Corinth for tolerating a man. 
that was sleeping with his mother-in-law? Or what about the believers in Galatia who soon after believing the gospel, they began to fall away and to adopt Judaism and legalism as a means to salvation? Or what about the churches in Revelation chapter two through three that Jesus threatened to snuff out if they didn't clean up their act? There is much to imitate in the early churches, but there is also much to avoid. These churches, like our churches today, struggled with human nature and with sin and with false doctrine. Number four, you should steer away from using the early church to criticize your own church. Although there are many ways in which your church needs to grow, our church needs to grow, to change and repent. We gotta be careful about using the let's get back to the early church sentiment as a way to criticize the perceived shortcomings of your current church. Some serious changes may need to be made and there may even be some avenues to humbly and honestly voice those concerns to your church leaders, but beware of setting up an idealized picture of the early church and then complaining that the other members just simply don't get it. Not only might your whitewashed picture of the early church be misguided, but you may also fall into demonstrating uh, a, a lack of long suffering towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. And as it turns out, showing such grace and patience for a fellow believer would actually be a great way to imitate the early church that we would love each other, that we would encourage each other, and that we wouldn't always be looking at the early church as the only model to follow or as if they got it all right. Well, in our passage this morning, we're gonna see four characteristics of the early church that we definitely do want to imitate. There's more to imitate than not imitate, I believe, and so this morning, we're gonna look at four things we want to imitate, the unity of the church, the preaching of the church, the caring of the church, and the disciples of the church. Let's start with number one, the unity of the church there in verse 32. And your first blank, if you're taking notes this morning, says united in essential doctrine. Verse 32 again says, how the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And so as the church continued to grow in Jerusalem and spread throughout Judea and Samaria, there was no longer a number count given, but we know it was on the upward sides of 20,000. These believers were united together in a special way. And this verse says that they were of one heart and soul. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul reminds us that as believers, we need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And that means that we need to be walking according to humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then it says in Ephesians four, three through six, to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so we understand that the Holy Spirit regenerates us and then he unites our hearts together with other believers. And when you talk about the universal church, you're talking about all true believers on planet Earth who are truly in Christ. These are believers who have repented of their sin and they have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are 
in one body, Christ's body, placed there by one spirit, the Holy Spirit. They have one hope in salvation and Christ's return. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father over all, as Ephesians 4 says. All true Christians are 100% unified on the gospel. All true Christians believe that God is holy, that you and I are sinners, that Christ came and died and was raised from the dead, and that if you don't repent and believe in him, then there's salvation in no one else. That's what we hold to. We have essential doctrines that unify us, and there's no doctrine greater in a sense than the doctrine of salvation. I mean, we could talk about theology proper, the divinity of Christ, the Holy Spirit, but I'm just saying, as far as being a Christian, we better make sure our soteriology is biblical. And one reason that the church may not seem to be unified today is that there are many so-called churches who are not holding to the true gospel. There are many churches today who would hold more tightly to their traditions and to their preferences and to even the cultural popular influences of the day that they don't longer display a faith that was once delivered to all the saints. And so what should ultimately unite us is not our view of the mode of baptism or our view of church polity or our view of spiritual gifts. What should ultimately unite us today is not a view of covenantal or dispensational theology or our view of eschatology, but what unites us today is our view of the gospel, to understand Christ and our biblical conviction that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the tie that binds us together. And not only do we see this in the early church, they're united in this essential doctrine, but we also see that they're united, your next blank, in experiential fellowship. Experiential fellowship. When verse 32 says that those who believed were of one heart, and one soul, this shows a powerful testimony. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they would also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This Jerusalem church was the first church that had the opportunity to demonstrate gospel unity to the world. First, Jesus must be in you. Then, the love of Christ compels you to love one another, and observing this gospel unity, the world takes notice of this unmatched fellowship. This first church was preoccupied with Jesus, and they were preoccupied with ministering his love to one another. They were intent on having this one and same mind, the mind of Christ, the message of Christ, and the ministry of Christ. Paul says it This way in Philippians 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
So if you are in Christ and have received comfort from his love, if you are participating and walking in the spirit, if you are filled with Christ's affection and sympathy, then you are called to complete each other's joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord. And what does that lead us to? Well, according to Philippians 2 in that same context, in the next couple of verses it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others and count their, uh, them as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The way to love each other is to consider the other person more significant than yourself. The way to love someone is to consider their interests more important than your own. And when you love in this way, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. And as a church, I want us to be united in our doctrine. There's nothing more that I want to do than to preach Christ and the resurrection and the true gospel week after week from this pulpit. But what I also want to do is I want to see us as a church also being united in essential fellowship. That because of our commitment to Christ and his gospel, we're committed to each other like never before. And during the times that we're living in, when our culture is straying away from all that is good and true and right, we have to hold together. And we have to love each other and encourage one another with the same conviction that we have for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're demonstrating that love to one another. That's how you'll be a testimony to unbelievers, that they'll see our love for one another. Let's be a church that holds tightly to the gospel, and let's be a church that has one heart and one soul. Well, now that we've seen the unity of the church, let's look at a second component of the early church we want to emulate, and that would be the preaching of the church. I'm going to come back to the second part of verse 32 here in a minute, but for this second major heading, let's look at verse 33, and it says, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. Your next blank says, great power comes from being spirit Filled. This is what's happening to the apostles. They are proclaiming the resurrection. They have a great power among them, on them, in them, dwelling in them now as they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You remember Acts 1.8, the theme verse for this, uh, this book, the book of Acts, but you will receive... Oh, you guys have gotten a little rusty since uh, we started this off a few months ago. And you will receive... When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, that we receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to make sure that you're reminded this morning that Holy Spirit power does not come from you being cute. Holy Spirit power does not come from you being witty. Holy Spirit power does not come from you being comical or funny. You get great power from on high. And the Holy Spirit has the power to regenerate your dead heart, to revive your weary soul, and to rekindle your passion for the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit purifies you. It washes you. It ignites a fire in you that can never be put out. It was this kind of power that Hugh Latimer shared with Nicholas Ridley as they were being burned at the stake in the English Reformation. 
As the flames quickly rose, Latimer encouraged Ridley, and this is what he said, you've heard this before, but he said this, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Now listen to me, that's Holy Spirit power. That's what that is. That's not normal. You, you, you can't just muster that up by sitting around doing nothing. You can't just muster that up by sitting around playing video games or watching the NBA finals or shopping online. Okay, I did all three of those things this week, all right? <laughs> but I'm just saying that's not where the power comes from, right? It comes from the Holy Spirit and it comes from you walking in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said it this way in Luke 24, 49, about the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you and stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. I like that. You're going to be clothed with power. You stay put till the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, which he did, and now we're just reflecting on that. He goes, you're going to be clothed with power. You're going to be dressed with power. You're going to be adorned with power, and that power is found in the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 says, because of our gospel, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. With great power comes great responsibility. And the apostles knew exactly what their responsibility was, and it was to preach the gospel. And that's why our next blank says, great preaching is about proclaiming the resurrection. Again, with great power, verse 33, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles kept doing the very thing they were told to do. They were, they were told, remember, not to teach anymore in the name of Jesus, but Jesus had already told them that they are to make disciples of all nations. And so they are gonna obey the mandate of God over obeying the mandate of man. Jesus had told them to go out, to be salt and to be light, that they would be persecuted, but they are to proclaim the message of the gospel. So the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the apostles had personally seen Jesus on the day that he was raised from the dead. They had talked with him. They had eaten with him. Thomas had put his hand in Jesus' side and in his, the scars there on his hands. They, they weren't interested the apostles, they weren't interested in just touching on the peripheral issues. They were interested in focusing on the resurrection. In fact, turn with me, if you will, over to the right, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just as we see here again that this is the message of the apostolic preaching, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand 1 Corinthians 15, I'll just pick up in verse 3. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, for I deliver to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then to the twelve. And so we see here that the resurrection is of first importance. If you don't have the resurrection right, then nothing is right in your theology or in your faith. So let's get this straight. Christ died for our sins, and he was raised on the third day, and this happened in accordance with the scriptures. 
And now look down at verses 12 through 14, still there in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12 through 14. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. This passage is saying that the cornerstone of our faith is the resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and good for nothing. And if there is no resurrection, and if, the, if there is no Jesus coming out of the grave and being raised, then there is no Christian faith. And if there is no Christian faith, then there is no forgiveness, and there's no mercy, and there's no grace, and there's no eternal life, and there's no reason for living. But the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead. And those who believe in the resurrection, in the substitutionary atonement of Christ, in his imputed righteousness, have been saved. This is the major emphasis of the apostolic preaching. Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death. Acts 2.32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we have all become his witness. Acts 3.15, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, and we are his witness. Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Acts 10.40, but God raised him up on the third day, and, to, and made him to appear. Acts 13.30, but God raised him up from the dead. Acts 13.37, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. I wonder how much time you spend on the resurrection in your evangelism. Most of the time in our evangelism, we get distracted about issues going on in the culture, or what I would call secondary and tertiary issues in the faith, which are still important, but they're not essential. They're not essential to salvation. And how much time do you spend just saying, hey, but Jesus was raised from the dead. I know they may say, well, I don't believe it. But just because they say they don't believe it doesn't mean, brothers and sisters, that you don't proclaim it. <laughs> you, you proclaim the gospel of the resurrection of Christ. There are many today who might not even mind talking about the resurrection, but they might mind talking about why Jesus died in the first place. Jesus died because he claimed to be the only begotten son of the Father. Jesus died because he said, I and the Father are one. Jesus died because he replaced the Sabbath as a true and lasting rest. Jesus died because he claimed to be older than Abraham, more miraculous than Moses, and more efficacious than the sacrificial system. Jesus died to pay our sin debt. Jesus died to appease the holy wrath of God. Jesus died because it pleased the Father to crush his Son. Jesus died to break the chains of sin that bound us. Jesus died because the blood of bulls and goats wasn't good enough. Jesus died because of our depravity. Jesus died because it was the Father's redemptive plan. Jesus died because he wanted to be obedient to his Father. Jesus died because he loves sinners like you and like me. You must believe not only that there was a resurrection, 
but in the meaning of the resurrection. People may say, oh yeah, Jesus is raised from the dead, but they don't even understand what it means. So you have to take a little time to explain to them, not only did the resurrection happen, but why it was necessary for it to take place, and how only in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ can you have eternal life, which means that if you understand the resurrection, then you have to understand your sin, your depravity, the wages of your sin is death, and that you deserve hell. You have to understand that in order to understand the power of the resurrection, which sets us free from our sin. So the next time you talk about the resurrection to somebody, maybe think about being a little bit more thorough and not only proclaiming it, but making sure they understand, and that can only happen with the Holy Spirit's power, but making sure they understand all that encompasses the doctrine of the resurrection. This is what the apostles taught. They had great preaching, powerful preaching. It was about the resurrection. That's what the focus of their preaching was. And then we see at the end of verse 33 that great grace, your next blank, great grace was upon them all. The word for grace here is the word charis. It means God's unmerited favor. The word means a gift. It is an application of God's generosity and his goodwill. And when this verse says that in great grace was upon them all, it means that all had benefited greatly from God's kindness to them through Christ. There are really two aspects of grace. There is God's saving grace, and then there is God's sustaining grace. We see God's saving grace in verses like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace we've been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then we see God's sustaining grace in verses like Acts eleven twenty three, which is a cross-reference to our text here, but it says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted, exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. This verse is talking about when the church in Jerusalem heard about God's work in Antioch, they sent Barnabas to them, and when he came and saw their faith, he rejoiced with them. But not only did he rejoice with them, but he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And to remain faithful to the Lord in steadfast purpose, that requires grace. That's sustaining grace. God's grace saves us, and God's grace sustains us. You can't become a Christian without the grace of God, and you can't live as a Christian without the grace of God. You can't be justified apart from God's grace, and you can't progress in your sanctification without God's grace. And this was great grace that came upon them all. This is the grace of God. I wonder this morning if you would say that same grace has come upon me this morning, that I've been saved by the grace of God, that I'm being sanctified day in and day out by the grace of God. What does that look like in your life on a daily basis? Well, we've seen the unity of the church. We've seen the preaching of the early church. It's all about the resurrection. And number three, the caring of the church. We'll go back and pick up the second half of verse 32. Your next blank says, a willingness to sacrifice financially. End of verse 32, it says, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The loving, unselfish unity of the early church found here a practical expression 
and the sharing of material possessions. Verse 32 shows that everyone was involved. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, what, did you, what do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change with shifting shadow. These verses are simply reminding us that everything that we have is a gift from God. Our lives are a gift from God. Our salvation is a gift from God. Our families are a gift from God. And our possessions, likewise, are a gift from God. The truth is, everything belongs to God. He owns it all. And just as we are stewards and managers of his property, we want to also be generous stewards and managers of his property as we share with one another and as we are generous with one another in the same way that God's been generous toward us. And a very practical test of a Christian's love is how much he or she is willing to sacrifice financially. That's a a litmus test to show the depth of the maturity of your love for Christ. Are you willing to sacrifice financially? 1 John 3, 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If you are a brother in need, and are not willing to sacrifice to help, if you see a brother in need and you're not willing to sacrifice and help him out, this verse is saying, well, how exactly is God's love abiding in you? You may say that you're a Christian, you may indeed be born again, but if you're not willing to share with others what God's given to you, how in the world are you living out your faith? We wanna help people by meeting their spiritual needs, but we also wanna help people by meeting their physical needs as well. God's called us to do both. I mean, only he can save somebody and truly meet that spiritual need, but we can certainly show the love of Christ in practical ways. We read about this in James chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So James goes off for a little bit, just saying, hey, you say you have faith, but it needs to be a faith that works, a faith that's in action. And what he emphasizes in chapter two is not actually preaching the gospel. He emphasizes you need to share with them, those who have needs, what you have, and in doing that, you're demonstrating your faith. And if you have true faith, you will have true works. And if a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, you can't just say as a Christian, be warmed and be filled. You have to give them what they need for their body. And in order to give them what they need, you have to share what you have with others. And the truth is, this ought not to be a burden. This isn't the sermon of like, oh man, we gotta go sell everything we have and give it away because you know that's, it, it, this ought to be a delight. It ought to be like, ooh, ooh, good, I heard about a need. I think God's given me the grace to meet that need. I'm so excited to get involved. I have a practical way I can live out my faith. It ought to actually be something that's exciting to you and not a burden to you. It ought to be a delight. Therefore, 
we ought to be a willing, uh, there ought to be a willing sacrifice, a willingness to sacrifice financially. Your next blank says, and there ought to be a willingness to share extra resources. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. So the result of this practical demonstration of love in Jerusalem was that there was not a needy person among them. Remember, there are thousands of new Christians and thousands of pilgrims that would come to Jerusalem three times a year for the designated feast. And now this new community, this new church of Christians wanted to meet every need that they could. Remember, again, Acts 2, 44 through 45, all who believed were together and had all things in common, selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. This is now continuing. We've gone through chapter three, chapter four. Certainly there's probably days, weeks, months, maybe even years that have passed as we progress through the book of Acts, but they're continuing to sell what they have and to share with one another. This is the normal ongoing practice of the early church. And here in verse 34, it says they were selling houses and land. That's even more than just sharing some of the resources that you already have available at your disposal. You're now going beyond your immediate resources that are at your disposal, and you're saying, hey, you know what? I have an investment. I have land, our houses. This was liquidating assets to show love to a fellow neighbor in need. This was going the extra mile. And some people have thought that this passage may teach a primitive form of communism or communal living. This simply is not true. The early church did not pool all of their possessions, but rather, as verse 35 states, look at it, verse 35, they distributed to each as any had need. So it was an as-needed basis. According to Acts 12, 12, individual members of the church still owned houses. In Acts 5, Peter makes it clear to Ananias that the selling of the property and the donating of the money to the church was strictly voluntary. That's different than communism. You don't understand the difference. In communism, the government takes it from you. They take it from you and equalize it to everybody no matter what the need is. It's not really a system that works based on generosity, but based on dictatorship. And those that are in power, oh, by the way, live in much nicer houses than the rest of the community of communism. So that's not a Christian principle. And yet the Christian principle is one of let's share Let's take what we have. Oh, I have some extra. God's blessed me extra with this, this, and this. And now I see an incredible need over here. I'm going to take this and offer it to the Lord as I now want to help with this other need. It's an incredible concept of New Testament Christianity. And then we see in verse 35, as we're continuing to look at this care and share with one another, your next blank says a willingness to submit to the apostles' leadership. Verse 35, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was some organization to this. Christ had placed the apostles in a place of authority over his church. In fact, Jesus had said in Matthew 16, 19, to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. There's a symbol of authority that Christ is giving to the apostles. And I like how verse 35 illustrates an important pattern concerning giving in the local church. The donations are to be placed in the control of the spiritual leaders who are then responsible before God to use these resources 
for the care of the church as well as for the spreading of the gospel. And it wouldn't be helpful if each individual earmarked each and every gift for their own special interest. At some point, you have to trust in God's appointed leaders to use the funds that God has provided in a God-honoring way. Giving is an honor and a privilege, and it ought to be done in faith. And I love how we see this principle continuing in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, as Paul praises the generosity of the churches of Macedonia. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according uh, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. All I'm saying is that we're seeing the early church now through Corinthians, which had its issues, which I mentioned in 1 Corinthians, but we see the church is still growing, expanding in their understanding and appreciation of giving. They were actually begging to be part in the relief for the saints. And so we certainly want to follow this early church's example in their unity, in their preaching, and in their caring for one another, and also in their example. And so we see an example, our next major heading here is the disciples of the church, and we'll see one person named in particular, and it's Barnabas. Your next blank says Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Verse 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. And so here is a man that serves as an excellent example or illustration of those who were selling their property. Joseph, who is much better known as Barnabas, becomes a prominent figure in the book of Acts. And sometimes Luke will introduce a figure and then come back later and give us more information about him. So we're gonna learn a lot more about Barnabas. But here's our first introduction to him. He's a son of encouragement and he's a generous dude. He's gonna sell what he has and lay it at the apostles' feet. And a little bit later in Acts 9, it was Barnabas who vouched for Paul's character and introduced him to the Jerusalem church. It was Barnabas who assured them that his conversion was indeed legitimate. In Acts chapter 11, it was Barnabas who went on a, a mission to minister to the Gentile converts in Antioch. Barnabas was Paul's partner on his first missionary journey in Acts 13. It was also Barnabas who, together with Paul, represented the Antioch church at the crucial Jerusalem council of Acts chapter 15. And so we learn here that Barnabas, look at the end of verse 36, he was a Levite, which means he was a member of the priestly tribe. Barnabas was apparently born outside of Israel on the island of Cyprus. And we can see from all of this that Barnabas indeed was a man of character, he was a man of sympathy. He was a man of courage. He was a man of generosity. No wonder the apostles called him Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And then in verse 37, we see it was Barnabas who was this example of generosity. Barnabas is an example of generosity. Verse 37, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, if you're an Old Testament scholar, 
or student, you should know that the Levites were not to own any land. Numbers chapter 18, verse 20 to 24, we see that the Levites were not to own the land, but rather to depend upon God to care for them as they were ministers of the church and the priestly duties. And they were to depend on the other tribes as they would come and bring their sacrifice to the Lord. The Levite tribe was able to take some of that for their own nourishment. And so how is it, you may ask, that Barnabas has land to sell? It, it, that's, a, that's an appropriate question that we should ask. Some of the commentaries say things like he could have owned land in Cyprus where he was born, so this would have not broken God's law because it was not part of the promised land, but land in Cyprus, that might be what he sold. It could be that his wife, he got married and his wife may have owned some land. She might not have been a Levite, but together they sold the land and so they brought the proceeds forth. It is also possible that this prohibition for a Levite to own land was no longer enforced in the New Testament times, since we've now moved into the New Covenant. The important thing to take note of here was that Barnabas did sell the field, that he did bring the proceeds, and that he did lay the money down at the apostles' feet. This was a great example of generosity. This was a great example of a specific person that we know in the book of Acts who was encouraging and he also practiced what he preached. Barnabas embodies submission, humility, and trust. He trusted the apostles to distribute it. He didn't want credit for how it was used. He wasn't interested in self-glorification, but in God's glory. It is one thing for us as we're hearing this message and considering the example of Barnabas. It's one thing for us as a church to say that, yeah, the church should practice generosity. And it's another thing for you to practice generosity. It's one thing for us to say, hey, this person has a need. The church needs to meet that need. And it's another thing for you to say, hey, you know what? I believe that God's prompted my heart that I want to get involved in meeting that need. It's one thing to say, it's a good thing to do. It's another thing to say, let me, Lord. Ooh, 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 what could I sell? What could I give up? I get to be a Barnabas. I get to get involved. Maybe I'm not called to preach or teach or lead a ministry, but I have the opportunity to get involved. And I don't care if you tell somebody or you don't tell somebody. Sometimes you have to kind of, you know, get information from the church of how to get the, the money to where it needs to get. I understand that. But I'm saying the important thing is that you just do what God's called you to do. How many times have you sat here in a service and heard about a missionary who's going out? Maybe one who's headed to the Philippines. How many times have you heard about a family that you know is in need and all of a sudden you just kind of felt a little, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something about that. You get home, you talk to your wife, you talk to your husband, you look at your bank account, and you're like, ah, maybe next time, Lord. I'm guilty. Anybody else guilty? You ever done that? Like, maybe next time, Lord. What I felt in the service is kind of gone now. <laughs> I'm looking at what's going on with my checkbook. You know, so I'm just saying, like, this is an opportunity for us to grow for us to respond, not just to agree in principle, but to practice in person. May we remember 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7, that whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves. What does he love? He loves a cheerful giver. Does that describe you today? 
The believers in Acts were so unified in the gospel that they were willing voluntarily to divide up their own possessions in order to provide for those in need. This demonstrates a complete rejection of materialism and selfishness. They recognized the infinite value that they had found in the gospel of Jesus Christ and they loved one another so freely and so deeply that they wanted to share their worldly possessions with one another. May we not be able to hold back from following in a similar example. May we confess our selfishness before God. May we trust in his provision for us as a church body and for you and me as families who are trying to take care of our, of our homesteads. And may we just trust that God would use whatever it is that we offer willingly and graciously to meet the needs of others. You may not be able to emulate everything in the early church, but we can certainly emulate the way that they live together in unity, the way that they preach the power of the resurrection, and the way that they cared for one another. Look at the take-home section of your notes there. Just a couple of questions, and we're done. How can you practically demonstrate a unity and essential doctrine and an experiential fellowship? What does that look like for you? How could you practically demonstrate, hey, we're not moving from the gospel, but we want to link arms together and experience the kind of fellowship God wants us to? The second question is, what is so important, uh, why is it so important for the church to be focused on the preaching of the resurrection? I hope that this week you'll be able to share the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ with somebody. Talk about the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and why that happened. And number three, how can you joyfully sacrifice what you have in order to serve the needs of others? I'm going to pray here in just a moment. I wanted to remind you that we have a couple that will be standing back by this door. We'd love to serve you in any way that we can. If you want prayer, God's working in your heart in a special way. You want to today come into that fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ. You want to repent of your sins and trust him. You can do that right now in your seat where you are. You could, you could say, hey, Adam, maybe for the first time I'm hearing about the resurrection and I'm seeing what a difference that makes in my life. If God's calling you out of darkness into light, we want to encourage you, challenge you, and to implore you to repent this day. And look to the resurrection as the only means of your salvation. If you want to talk about any of those things, we'll have somebody available to pray with you after we sing our last song. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to come together today in unity, in the unity of the gospel, and to be reminded of the preaching of the apostles, of the resurrection, to be encouraged with this example of Barnabas, someone that we're going to get to know better and, and love and appreciate the common practical way that he wanted to uh, build the body of Christ there in Jerusalem and in Antioch and on his mission trip with Paul. God, I pray that you would help us as we evaluate how to practically apply some of the principles that we've been challenged with and that we've learned today in a special way that would exude grace all for your glory and for the betterment of another person and for the extension of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Work in our hearts, work in our midst. Allow us to be a part of your family and to serve in a special way. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.